So we'll be in Acts chapter 10 today. We'll try to pick up where we left off, and, and we will, uh, in some ways, meet some converging stories in this chapter. And so here's where I'm, I'm guilty, and I have to just kind of give a qualification. Um, I, I would, I'm guilty of what I would call American sensationalism. Uh, it's just that uh, the best, you can see this personified in a guy like maybe Jimmy Fallon, like, that's awesome, that's awesome, that's great, that's really great, no, that's awesome, that's awesome, and, and you kind of get to the point where, and you've listened to me very long, if everything's awesome, nothing's awesome, right? It's kind of like if you go into a store and everything's on a special sale, nothing's on a special sale, you know what I'm saying? And so um, this really is a particular place in Scripture where a lot of really, and again, I'm, I'm trying not to say awesome, great, or but for me, some very fascinating and uh, moving and inspiring stories converge over the course of these few chapters for the last couple of weeks, which you can have access to from our website, SiouxFallsConnection.com, or um, you can kind of pick up where with us today and for the next couple of weeks, and where these converging narratives begin to intersect and cross paths, and, and some really awesome things take place. And, uh, it, it, and so, for instance, up to this point, we've, we've really been looking at the ways in which that God has called people to respond to the good news of Jesus. So, as you look through the table of contents in your Bible, you'll see the beginning of what we call the New Testament is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the Gospels. They're a, and that's a nice big churchy word for the word good news, right? They're, they're the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. And in that, Jesus is not just some really cool guy who is a, a really great teacher and, and changed our history, but there's actually something that God has done and demonstrated and accomplished for us in Jesus Christ that's incredibly good news. So good, in fact, better than any gossip or any rumor you've ever heard, you cannot keep it a secret. It's that good. You, you have to tell someone, and, and when it begins to change our own hearts, it begins to kind of flow out of us, and so the response to that overflow we see in the book of Acts, and if you ask yourself, what is it that Christians do? What, what is it that they're meant to look like? We see the answer in the book of Acts, literally the actions of the apostles, the actions, the the, the conduct, the behavior of these first followers of Jesus. And we, we want to emulate all the things we can in here. Um, of course, there's some things that, that t- seem to take place that seem to be like a one-time occurrence. And so we want to learn from those occurrences. We want to learn from those narratives and say, wow, that's amazing. But, but in the end, know that maybe if we don't have that gift or that power or God isn't doing that theme, that thing at this particular time, don't go trying to do it, right? God, God tends to, to show us the power that he, he gives us, but the Holy Spirit begins to do things in these people, and we are simply, for the last several months, and hopefully for the next couple of months, dive into this looking for the kinds of things that we ought to imitate. If we're going to walk in Jesus' footsteps, if we're going to call ourselves followers of Jesus, then we want to learn from these very first followers, And if we're going to fight amongst each other over things that are important, then they had better be very unoriginal things. They had better be things that are only found in Scripture, not things that we've come up with on our own. And we want to fight and die for these things that these first followers of Jesus were willing to fight and die for. And the rest of the stuff, we really really don't care. And so we love learning from these first followers of Jesus and and even the language seems, kind of be the, seems to be the language of hyperbole in these few chapters where these narratives converge. And so I hope that you're, you won't hold it completely against me that I'm an American sensationalist and I, I think all of this is really awesome. Everything is awesome. It's from a kid's movie. It's 
we're, done, we're doomed. So Acts chapter 10 is a kind of a convergence and an intersection of multiple different narratives. Up to this point, Jesus has commanded these first followers with this specific task that they'll also be empowered to perform and complete. And in Acts 1.8, we see that Jesus commands his people to go and be witnesses. Now, they want to know the answers. They want to know the, the, the outcome of the story. They want to know the end. They want, hey, Jesus, when are you coming back? When are you going to be king over all things here on earth? When's that going to happen? And Jesus' response is pretty simple. It's none of your business. Instead, what is your business is that you ought to take what you've seen and heard from me. You ought to follow in my footsteps. Be my witnesses. And the Holy Spirit will give you the power to do so here in Jerusalem with your neighbors but also in Judea with some people who are a little more distant and even to the people we do not love or like in Samaria. And if that isn't far enough to share this good news, to be witnesses of what Jesus has done, Jesus says, to the ends of the earth even, you'll go and you'll be my witnesses. And up to this point, we've seen the fulfillment of that prophecy and command through these followers of Jesus. And, and Luke wants you to remember that the things that these people are doing tend to come directly from Jesus. And so as we'll see today, as just the last couple of weeks, they're not doing anything original. In fact, Luke tends to connect everything that these followers of Jesus are doing with something that Jesus did originally. And so as you read through the book of Acts, the gospel of Luke begins to kind of come to light. The same book that Luke wrote as a good news of Jesus called the gospel of Luke tends to be a repeat as the followers of Jesus follow in his footsteps in the book of Acts. And we see some of those particular things happen in chapter 10. So let's read together in Acts chapter 10. We'll try to cover as much as we possibly can, beginning in verse 1. So at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. I don't know what that is, but it sounds cool. Right? It just, you already, it just, Luke wants you to think this dude is a big deal. Like he, he's like, he, he not only is he a centurion, uh, a leader of at least 100 men, but he's a part of this specific elite force. And he, he wants you to kind of think, I guess probably for us in terms like this is, it would be like saying this is a guy who's a part of SEAL Team 6, right? That this, this Italian cohort, people would know. And this centurion, Cornelius, was the leader of that group. Verse 2, it says, He was also a devout man who feared God with all his household. And he gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed continually to God. So about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius! And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? Or what is it, Master? And he said to him, Your prayers... And your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter, who we know up to this point as one of the leading followers of Jesus, Jesus kind of the most outspoken guy, a guy who at one point denied Jesus and denied even knowing Jesus for the sake of saving his own skin, who is now risking his own life to tell people about Jesus. Cornelius is to send his messengers, and bring this Simon who is called Peter. Verse 6, he is now lodging with another Simon, that is one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, 
he, that is Cornelius, called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So here's this guy. Now up to this point, all of the stories that we've heard of miraculous events, of radical transformation of people's lives, that is people, they hear this good news of who Jesus is, for some reason it inspires them, it changes the way they see the world, and because they believe and trust that it's true, it changes their lives forever and it begins to change the way they walk in the world. And up to this point, all of the people involved in these stories have been Jewish. They've been the same ethnicity as Jesus, the same ethnicity and tradition of Jesus and his followers. And up to the point, that's who has been involved in most of these accounts. And so this radical transformation of people's lives seems to be a movement amongst a group of people, a specific group of people, a group of people with a long tradition of believing that God has a special plan for them. And therefore, they have a long, a very long list of laws and practices that distinguish them as a group of people from the people around them. And most of these people in the story that live according to these rules, that walk according to these ways, that are now being transformed by the good news of Jesus are Jewish. And along comes this story in chapter 10 about a guy named Cornelius, who was not a Jew, but in fact he was Roman. He was Italian, to be specific, not Jewish. And not only was he an Italian guy, but he was a well-known man. After all, centurions were kind of the real deal. Real deal. In, in, a, in a legion, there were around 6,000 troops. And each centurion led about 100 of those troops. And the while the legion was controlled by, by often the Praetorian Guard, an elite special force of Caesar, the rest of the people were guided and led and commanded by what were known as centurions. Now these guys were like enlisted men, okay? So they weren't just, some, they weren't just born into the position. Instead, these were men that, that came and because of their valiant uh, and, and courageous ways, their conduct made them to where they were, they were basically promoted into the position of leader. We'd know them probably, the closest I can think of is like a captain. But they were, they were enlisted men. They weren't trained officers. They were men who had shown valor and courage in battle to the point that they were called out from among the soldiers as leaders. They were special. So Centurion wasn't just like a soldier. He's like the real deal. He's like special forces, right? He's a navy, not just a, not just a naval uh, officer. He, he's a navy seal, right? He's not just an army man, you know, not just a specialist man. He's like, he's like a green beret. He's like a, we're talking like rangers. These are, these are elite guys that lead other people because they are so incredible. And Luke's want, Luke wants you to remember that centurions aren't a new character and the stories involving Jesus. In fact, he wants you to remember that, that this centurion, even though he's not like uh, the rest of these people, even though he's, uh, he's, he's not like some of, uh, some of these Jewish people, doesn't have the same customs, he wants you to remember that 
these guys have shown up in the stories before. And so if you want to, you can join me, but I want to read to you just really briefly uh, from the Gospel of Luke in Luke chapter 7 and tell you a story uh, that, that we're meant to be uh, reminded of as we, as we hear this. And so in, in chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, this story in Acts is meant to remind us of a specific encounter Jesus had. So Luke chapter 7, verse 1, it says that Jesus... After he had finished all these sayings that was within the hearing of these people, he entered Capernaum. And now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death who was highly valued by him. So this centurion who was who was quite the soldier, also had a servant, but his servant, who apparently was of great value, he wasn't just some meaningless servant. Apparently he was a a meaningful servant for the centurion. He was sick. And verse 3 tells us that when the centurion heard about Jesus, namely that Jesus had power to do amazing things, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but simply say the word, Jesus, and let my servant be healed. Listen to what the centurion acknowledges about Jesus. For I too am a man set under authority. I have soldiers underneath me. And if I say to one of them, go, then he goes. And if I say to another, come, then he comes. And if I say to my servant, do this, then he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at the centurion. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, now listen to these words, because the Jews from Israel are different from the centurions who were Gentiles, Romans. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, when he heard these things, verse 9, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel, Get that? Not, not even amongst God's chosen people. Not even amongst those that are chosen by God to look a certain way in the world. Not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found that the servant was healed. He was well. So this is a story, kind of a precursor to, to this Acts chapter 10, in which Jesus was walking along teaching people, doing amazing things. And this centurion, who, who was not of the same ethnicity of Jesus, he had no reason to be connected to him, other than apparently we see from the elders uh, an account that this centurion was at least a nice guy. You see, the centurions were, were leading militarily the occupation that the Romans had over the nation of Israel. All of the Jews didn't have control of their own state. They, they basically had limited control given to them under these different governors and different jurisdictions split up amongst the Roman government. And as, as Caesar split up the place that he had conquered, he, he let his people be in control 
over the native people like the Jews, the people of Israel. And, and so you can see there's this tense relationship between like, the people who live here in our home and then the people who are not from here but tell us what to do. And they're in control. And you see this is kind of a tense relationship. And, and Jesus, of all, of all people, probably could have sensed it and he could have responded in any number of ways. But this this centurion apparently is not like the other people that have created this tense relationship between the Jews and these Romans. This centurion was different. He apparently was a pretty nice guy. Apparently had shown kindness to, to some of these other people. So much so that amongst these other people, when arose this Jesus... He heard the stories and and instead of kind of jumping on the bandwagon to to shut this Jesus up and to stop this movement that he had begun, instead he sends his servants to this Jesus so that Jesus through his power might come and heal this sick servant of his. And the centurion does something amazing because up to this point Jesus has done most of his healing through the power of touch. And we see this is a big deal in the New Testament. The power of touch, laying on of hands so that there's some sort of power transferred. And Jesus would often do some amazing things. Sometimes he like spit in the ground and made dirt and wiped it on a blind guy's eyes. And this this mud mixture caused the man to all of a sudden be able to see. But, But Jesus had this kind of connection and this touch. And the centurion recognized something about Jesus that up to this point, all of the people of Israel did not recognize and that Jesus had the power to do whatever he wanted whether he touched, whether he didn't. And so the centurion sends his messengers to Jesus and he says, Jesus, look, I don't deserve for someone like you to come into my house. Right? And you can sympathize with this. Like if a foreign dignitary, if someone famous came to your house, right, you'd start to feel a little bit self-conscious, wouldn't you? Right? You were on cribs last week and now you're coming over to my house? It's like, uh, I, you know, I don't know that you're going to feel welcome. You know, I'm, you, know you, you eat filet mignon. Hey, you want to come to our house and eat a hot dog, right? There's kind of this, there's a sense in which like, I'm in, a, I'm in a tax bracket that makes other people in higher tax brackets probably feel uncomfortable when they come to my house, right? Unless, of course, maybe they just used to live in that tax bracket and now they've kind of elevated themselves. But if the president of the United States, like if a senator came to my house, there's some things that have to change, am I right? It used to be the case we had a dog. Right? We had a dog that loved to love people. Um, kind of looked scary, but he just didn't, he didn't have a, like, like a bubble. Right? He didn't understand people's personal bubble. And he just assumed no one had a bubble, and so he would jump right in your bubble, lick you in your face, and do the things that dogs do, not knowing that people have a kind of a bubble. Hey, stay out of that. Right? That's what we had. And so when people would come over, even people who aren't famous, we kind of had to put him in the back room. If someone famous came over, you can imagine like a senator There'd even probably be a handful of people that would come first to check it out, right? You, you, can, you can picture the president visiting my house and the people who show up first, not the president, but a bunch of guys in suits doing this. Like, yeah, is it good? Is it good? Is it good? Yes, yes, yes. The basement is a mess. It's full of junk. Why did they throw all this junk down here? But it's good, right? There's kind of a self-consciousness you would probably have if someone famous came to your house. And it's a recognition that, like, you're, we're not on the same playing field. We're not the same. This person's accustomed to a different way of life, and if he comes to my house, I'll probably feel like he's slumming. And isn't it amazing, the centurion who had power, power on this earth over Jesus, if he wanted his hundred men to go after Jesus, he had the power to make that happen. 
And this man who had authority, who had a political power over Jesus, instead of lording that political power over Jesus, it's pretty amazing, he recognizes something bigger, greater, more powerful, maybe even more eternal in nature about this Jesus. So much so that he says, Jesus, don't even, don't even, don't even come to my house. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve you to come to my house, but I recognize you have power and I understand authority. I have earned the right to have authority over at least a hundred men. And when I tell them to jump, they say how high. And when I tell them to go, they go. And if I say let's run into battle and let's die for Caesar, they lay down their lives and they die. They don't ask. But you, Jesus, if you would just please, just command it to be so. I understand authority, and I know you have authority. If you would just command it to be so, I recognize that you have power over me. And at that moment, it says that the the servants made their way back, and and another gospel of Mark, it says that at that exact moment, they somehow kind of checked the sync, they synchronized the time, and they were like, at that moment, that servant got up, was healed. And Jesus' response is not all shame on that that Roman pagan. Not shame on that centurion who doesn't worship God as he ought to. His words were simple. There's nobody I've met, even amongst my own people, that have faith like this guy. And Luke wants you to remember, Luke wants you to have a picture in your mind about these centurions. In fact, most of the Gospels record this as well as Luke, and at the end of the Gospel of Mark, as Jesus uttered his loud cry, his last breath in Mark chapter 15. It says that Jesus breathed his last breath in verse 38. The curtain of the temple that was in the temple of God where they worshiped, there was a temp, there was a curtain that separated the holy of holies where the presence of God symbolically rested, where no one but the priests who were consecrated and set aside for the service were allowed to enter. And the temple veil that kept the rest of the people out of the presence of God ripped in two because Jesus had busted open the way to God. It says the curtain in the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, but in verse 39 of Mark chapter 15, it says this, when the centurion who stood facing Jesus, when he saw in this way that he had breathed his last breath, the centurion said, truly, this man was the son of God. This is a guy who who has no reason to like Jesus. In fact, it seems like in this particular account in Mark, he played an active role in putting Jesus to death. And and isn't it interesting, in that moment, the death of Jesus, when he cried that it is finished, it's done, the centurion, not of God's chosen people, not of the people following all the right rules that put you in right standing with God, but the centurion, a pagan, a Roman, the enemy for most of these people was the one who looked at Jesus and said, This one must have been God's son. One of the first believers who was inspired and transformed by the death of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus for you and for me, was a pagan, a Roman. And so when Luke comes along and he tells you this story about this centurion, he wants you to remember that this isn't the first time Jesus has reached out to people not like himself Instead, we see Luke wanting us to remember that this vision that Cornelius has of this thing that God is doing, 
It's authored by God, and it's begun long before this guy even came along. On a side note, look, look at what's happened in Acts chapter 10 that we just read. Cornelius doesn't have some idea that leads him on this path. Instead, we see that God instigates this encounter. And you love the, 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 the picture here. Notice the, the language that this angel God sends to Cornelius does not ask him for permission, right? Hey, Cornelius, if you would believe in what's happening and trust that this is good for you, do it. Is that okay? Is that cool with you, Cornelius? Instead, you kind of hear this, remember that, remember that first centurion that Jesus encountered who knew the authority when he recognized it? When he saw authority, he knew what to do. And look what this angel does. He says, Cornelius, your prayers have been a memorial before God. Now get up, send some men. He doesn't say, hey, would you please, if you're not busy. He just says, do it. And notice the centurion doesn't say, hey, like what's going to happen afterward? He just says, go. In verse 9, we pick up another narrative. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter, so if you're a big fan of, say, like Quentin Tarantino movies, this is like the bloop, black goes to another scene in the movie, right? So we're talking about the centurion and his messengers, and now all of a sudden it's kind of like, yeah, I, I can picture the, the, the spinning Batman sign and going like, meanwhile, back at this. So here we are. Meanwhile, Peter went up onto his housetop about the sixth hour to do what? Same thing Cornelius was doing when God encountered him. He was praying. And he became hungry and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing something to eat, he fell into a trance and he saw that the heavens were opened And something like a great sheet was descending and being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. This happened three times. And then this thing, this sheet, was taken up at once back into heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might actually mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius the pagan, the unclean, the common one, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering this vision, at the exact same time, simultaneously, while Peter was pondering this vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without any hesitation. For I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and he said, I am the one you were looking for. And what is the reason for you coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. Do you hear that? Remember, we've heard that before, haven't we? About a centurion who encountered Jesus and recognized something that the rest of the people did not. This God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a, whole, a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. And the next day he rose and he went away with them. 
and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and his close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him, and he fell down at his feet, and he began to worship him. So stop right there. Listen to what's just happened. In a separate place, in another place, in another narrative, Peter, this, one of the leaders and one of the most outspoken followers of Jesus, has this amazing vision, and he has it three times in a row. And in that vision, he sees these things that up to this point, his tradition, his ethnicity, his people find to be evil, unclean, you're not supposed to eat. In fact, there are rules about some of these animals that even if you don't eat them, if you touch them, there's usually like a period of cleansing you're supposed to have before you can touch anything else. And even just by touching them or being around them, it's it's possibly that you're unclean until you've gone through the ceremonial rites to, to be clean again. And along comes this vision that he presumes to be from God, and in that vision, he's meant to go and eat, because after all, it says that he was hungry, and the least appetizing things drop out of the sky onto this sheet, and there's a voice that says, eat these things, kill them, clean them, eat them. And Peter, being a good, devout Jew, he he recognizes, hey, maybe this is a test. I'm not supposed to do this. And he says, no, I, I'm not going to eat these things. These things are unclean. And there's this powerful thing, this powerful word. And we might be tempted to think, as Peter was, that it was about food. But he says in verse 15 to Peter, what God has made clean, do not call common. That is that power to really declare something good or bad, good or evil, ultimately rests in God's hands. I want to stop for a minute. This, this is an important thing because the lesson that's taught here isn't just about food, even though I like to refer to this as the bacon chapter, right? Anyone who loves bacon, you can thank Acts chapter 10. Dear Jesus, thank you for Acts chapter 10 for bacon. Right? Because otherwise, we would be living in a world where bacon is not okay to eat. And thank God, it's not. <laughs> Again, I'm out of control here. That's neither here nor there. But this has real-life implications for you and for me. As Christians, those of us who would call ourselves followers of Jesus, we don't have to catch each other on this, right? Like, hey, dude, that's not, that's not cool. You can't eat that. You know, I mean, and especially when you begin to think of like all the things made by, I don't know, you know most most packaged meat you don't even want to know about if we really loved each other we'd stop each other and go hey don't do that like what a corn dog wrapped in a pancake wrapped in a blueberry muffin that you throw in the microwave yeah what could go wrong right (laughs) but we don't do that to each other do we there's nothing wrong with any of those things instead we kind of we kind of jump in there with peter and go okay let's eat it so this is real life implications but notice that this isn't just about food is it Because while he was still wondering if this was about food, God takes these two narratives and they intersect at his house and he begins to realize this is bigger than just food. Now on a side note, I want to throw this in there. Beware of the temptation to think that things in and of themselves are evil. Because to declare that things in and of themselves are evil denies the power of Jesus over the heart and soul. So for example, 
kind of live in a culture over the last couple centuries in which things have come and gone and they've been good or evil. Right? Drugs. There are drugs that can save your life. There are drugs that can destroy your life. And isn't it funny? It's not the drug that's evil. It's the human heart that takes the thing and either uses it to save a life or uses it sometimes unknowingly to destroy it. Uh, lately, the big one's guns, right? There's a fear for guns, okay? And, and it, it, that's a great discussion to have. Apparently, it's an issue. It's going to be an issue for us in the future. We have more guns than any other nation. It's worth talking about, but, but beware. Don't, don't fall into the temptation to make the discussion only about guns. Because with a gun, a man can save a life. He usually has a badge. But with a gun, a man can commit murder. With a gun, a man can save and protect people, but with a gun, a man can walk into, and I hate to say this, but this is what, walk into a building like this full of innocent people and wreak havoc and do the most evil thing on earth. Now that's evil, but, but, but resist the temptation to confess that God sees the heart. God doesn't just play with toys. And for us to argue about the thing may be a good, good, good use of our time, but if we only argue about the thing and we don't see that ultimately it's the human heart that's broken and rebellious, then we'll miss the good news of Jesus. Alcohol, sex, forces that in the wrong or right hands can have completely different outcomes. In and of themselves are not evil. In and of themselves are gifts from God. In and of themselves have no power to be good or evil. But the issue isn't the thing. The issue is the human heart. I thank God that he did not send Jesus to take away guns, sex, drugs. I mean, name the thing that you think is evil. Thank God that Jesus didn't come to remove those things. Instead, Jesus came to save us, redeem us, and give us peace with God, which lasts a whole lot longer than any of those things. Jesus came to give us something of eternal value, much greater than any of those particular things. And as a side note, I'll just say that I think the enemy has a, has a foothold whenever he can get us distracted about talking about the human heart that needs to be turned toward God and seek his mercy. And I think the enemy has a victory when he can get us distracted from that in order to argue about the other stuff. And so hopefully, if nothing else, this is a lesson for you and for me that this isn't about stuff, Right? This isn't about whether you should eat meat, veg vegetables, gluten, not gluten. You, you, you get what I'm saying? Praise God, he has given us something much bigger, much greater. And we have an immense amount of freedom with the rest of that stuff. The lesson isn't about food. It's that when God makes something clean, it's clean. When Jesus came to this earth, to seek and to save that which was lost. That which was lost is now found. And when Jesus came to this earth, not to be served, but to serve and lay down his life for you and for me, and when he declared it is finished, friends, it's done. This is one of those things that I, I, I kind of backtrack on on a regular basis. Because you see, if it's not the thing, then there's something deeper. God is doing something 
in our hearts. And ultimately, it's not the things that we do that are the more important. It seems that it's what God does and what God declares. Did you catch that? So he lowered the sheet and he didn't say, hey, Peter, take the stuff and, you know, prepare it a certain way, right? Because you can imagine there's a way to prepare a pig that would turn out poorly, right? You're going to want to take some extra steps in terms of cleaning. You get what I mean? Because pig in, in, in a pig pen and pig bacon on a sandwich are two completely worlds apart, right? Right? One of them is like, mm, and the other one's like, Bleh. right? Get, get what I'm saying? So, so there's some important steps between pig rolling around in his own you-know-what to, oh, bacon-wrapped bacon squares. I don't know. I just made that up, but it sounds delicious, doesn't it? So right, there's, a, there's a big difference between the two. But notice that that isn't what this particular passage is about, right? Instead, it's simply about the power of God to look at something that even if it's rolling around in its own you-know-what, God has the power to look at it and go, no, I can make that thing clean. It's the power of God to declare righteousness upon people who are unrighteous. It's the power of God to declare peace on people who are at war and rebellion against God. It's the power of God by his own mercy, by his own grace, not by our own merit, not by our own process of cleaning things up. It's by the power of God alone to look at you and instead of seeing your filth and your failure to see the victory of Jesus Christ. I tend to forget that. I tend to spend a lot of time on the process. I need to do this. I need to work harder at this. That may be true. But it isn't the means by which God sees me as righteous. And even now, you may be tempted, like I'm sitting here telling you the good news of Jesus, what he's declared for us, and how he's made us clean. You, in your own heart and mind, might be right now. I've, I've been in, this, in your seats before. You hear the declaration of the gospel, and yet, as soon as you leave, you'll be like, I need to try harder. I need to do better. And, and I'm telling you the good news of Jesus is that it's already done. The good news of Jesus isn't that you need to try more. The good news of Jesus is something you simply need to trust more. You've already won. Jesus has already shared his victory with you and me. And now it's simply for us to believe it, receive it, even though it seems absurd, and then walk in such a way as if it were true. I say that because my temptation is, is to, even though I hear that God makes things clean, I still, I don't know about you, I, I still want you to think I'm still need to think I'm good, right? I want to clean myself up. I want to make a good impression. I want to accomplish things. And I tend to find my identity in those things. And I have a temptation every day to, to try hard. And, and there's good news in this declaration that God makes us clean by His own grace, not by your effort. And if you're wondering if this is just about food, Immediately, Cornelius, a person from another ethnicity, people that probably Peter disliked, instead of rejecting the person, instead of being afraid of him, because after all this, Cornelius had power over him, he sees something awesome. Did you catch that? In case you thought it was only about food. Did you hear what Cornelius? Cornelius, right? We're talking about Navy SEAL. We're talking about Army Ranger, right? We're talking about the real deal. He has power. He's, this has got to be a scary guy, right? Those guys physically tend to look a certain way, am I right? He shows up, and what does he do? With his power and authority over Peter, what does he do? Because he has encountered the power of Jesus. It says that he sees Peter, 
And he immediately falls down and he begins to worship him. A guy that he has all power and authority over. Instead of rejecting him, it says he worshiped him. Now Peter corrects him. You know this in verse 26. As Peter lifts him up, he says, stand up. I'm just a man. And then as he talked with him, he went in and he found many persons gathered together. Cornelius went and got his friends. Remember that? This good news? Can't keep it a secret? He hadn't even heard the good news yet, and he already wanted people to know about it. It says, And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew like me to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation like you. This is cool. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Notice, he could have interjected here. God has shown me that I can eat bacon, right? He doesn't say that, does he? It's not about food, is it? It's not about the stuff. God showed him, God, and this is important because my love language is food, so I, I suspect if God were ever to give me a vision, it would have to involve some food. And I'd be like, is this, not about, is this about food? I think it's about food. And, and notice, Peter sees, sees the truth, and he doesn't say, hey, Cornelius, we can now eat the same food together, right? Which, which is possible. I can eat food that the Romans eat. But he doesn't say that, does he? He looks at Cornelius and he says, I want you to know that God has shown me that what we might think of as distant, far off, clean, and improper, God has the power to transform. Because of that, I have no objection to come to see you. Verse 30, Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, and he tells the story, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. Behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. I love this because there might be another Simon. He says he's lodging, uh, by the house, excuse me, he's lodging in the house of Simon. Oh, there's two Simons? Which one? And he goes, just in case you don't know, the angel says he's a tanner. And wait, so there's, what if there's another Simon who's also a tanner? He's like, don't worry about it. There's another one. He's by the sea. Love the specificity of this command. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded to share with us by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth, and he said, truly, I understand now that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And as for the word that he has sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, for he is Lord of all things. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. Beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, including, remember, one servant of one centurion for god was with jesus and we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the jews and in jerusalem they put him to death by hanging him on a tree but god raised him on the third day and then made him to appear not to all the people but to us who had been chosen by god as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone, everyone, it doesn't matter where you come from or what you've done, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised, that is the Jews who had come 
with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even to the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have not received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And so he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days more. You see, it's not about food. This Cornelius has an amazing encounter, and when he finally hears the words of Peter, his life is changed, so much so that the Holy Spirit begins to transform them. They're baptized, demonstrating the symbol of true communion with God, not by an intimate mark of circumcision, but by the intimate mark of being buried in the water just like Christ was buried in the tomb and rising out just like Jesus walked out. See, the new symbol is open to people of all different backgrounds. The implications for this is huge. But the most specific, I think, for us, and there is a reason, there is a reason for fairness. There is a reason why Christians ought to take a stand against things like racial prejudice. There's a reason and it's not because we worship fairness. It's because we worship Jesus and we love everyone he loves. You see, God has done something and he has taken the dividing wall not only between us and him away, tearing the veil so that we would have access directly to God through Jesus Christ, but he's also torn down the dividing wall between you and me. You like the Green Bay Packers? I think you're a moron. But isn't it awesome that what Jesus has done is bigger than that? Who'd you vote for? Isn't it awesome that what Jesus has done is bigger than that? And the things that we would naturally see that differentiate us from the people around us, even though they may be true and we may be different, our skin color may be different, the way we talk may be different, our language may even be different. Isn't it amazing that Jesus has done something bigger to unite us than any of those things have the power to divide us? Yeah, we want fairness, but ultimately we want love for those people who are different than us. And we get to celebrate this, not because of something that we have done, but because of something that Jesus has finished on our behalf. What God has the power to make clean, we have no right to say is unclean. Our job isn't to differentiate but because it seems, according to Peter, that God shows no partiality in verse 34. So what's left for us to do? And just celebrate that God has taken the things that once divided us, not only from him but from one another, and he has put his son Jesus Christ in the way so that now there is an even playing field. Man, that is good news. And forgive me for saying this, that's awesome. <laughs> Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much. Uh, we thank you that you have done something uh, bigger than anything that we have done. Uh, we thank you that this story, oh, it's not just about food. Um, it's not just about the rules that we ought to follow, but instead, you have done something that's much greater than those things. And ultimately, our, our fate in life is not for us to follow rules, but our, our gift in life is to follow Jesus. 
So God, if we've never heard this good news, maybe, maybe if we're like Cornelius, we've always felt on the outside. If we've always felt like, God, you, you, you're out there to destroy us and, and we need to clean up our lives to, to get right with you. Uh, God, would you just begin to encourage us that that's not the case? Uh, we're wrong. We're not separate from you. Instead, just like Cornelius, man, uh, there, there's good news and, and we have access to it. Uh, not only that, but maybe if, if we know this good news, but maybe we're just keeping it a secret. Maybe we're, we're looking around us and for some reason we think we're better than other people or even, God forbid, we think other people are better than us and we think that creates a dividing line between us. Uh, God, would you help us to begin to, to see things differently, to see things like Peter did, uh, that you have, you have come to do something, you've made all things clean. and It's not by our own effort, but it's by your command. Uh, and by the power of Jesus, who's Lord over all, you, you summoned us to follow you. Help us not to be distracted by the other little things. Uh, God, it's, it's not about food. This is not about things. Help us not to be distracted uh, or divided among those things, but instead help us over and over to be united in what you've accomplished on our behalf. So that those things that although we might disagree on them, they begin just to be really small. They fade away in light of this amazing thing you've done for us in Jesus. Help us to celebrate that. Help us to respond to that in faith. So if there's someone who maybe they're far off, like Cornelius, uh, may they hear the good news of Jesus, that if they would simply believe it and receive what Jesus has done, believe that when he said it's finished, they would believe that it's true, they would begin to hear and feel the inspiration, the transformation, and the radical joy that comes from knowing that we are in good standing with you. Not because of what we've done, because of what you've done. And if there's those of us, may we know that and we're just holding back. Uh, help us to see that we need not to try harder, but we need to trust more. Uh, we don't need to trust more in our own effort to clean ourselves up. Uh, it's not in the process, but instead, God, help us to trust more that you've already completed the process. The rest is just for us to enjoy and receive with joy. We thank you for this, tr- this truth declared before us. Help us to respond faithfully. It's only by the power of Jesus Christ that we can do that. Amen.